Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Uh, it's really good to see so many uh, familiar and new faces, as always. Uh, my name is Matthew O'Coin. I am uh, your conductor tonight, as well as the composer of the opera you're about to hear. And <laughs> thank you. And I want to share a bit about the piece's genesis, uh, its emergence into the world. You are only the second audience ever uh, to hear the piece. Uh, and I think that by dint of showing up tonight, you agree to hearing some spoilers, because it's difficult to talk about. He does look back. I regret to, <laughs> I regret to inform you. But the piece, the piece does not end there. Uh, and I actually want to begin with a realization that I had two years into working on the piece, which is that this is really not an Orpheus opera. It is an entirely different story that has the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice enclosed within it. But the piece is bigger than that. Uh, I think that Sarah Rule's play and the libretto that we wrought together out of that play um, transcend the, the, the myth that it was based on and open into a totally weird, wonderful, dark, new space. So welcome to that world. Um, Sarah's play has been around since 2003 and has been performed countless times. It's a huge favorite um, among students, uh, both college and, and high school. It took uh, until uh, the fall of 2015 uh, and my own younger sister to, to recommend that I read uh, Sarah's work immediately. Uh, at the time, I knew that I wanted to do something with the Orpheus story, but I was a little bit stuck about just what. The year before, I had written a piece called The Orphic Moment for countertenor Anthony Rothcostanzo, who you, many of you have seen uh, on this stage as Akhnaten. Uh, and that piece was a kind of 17-minute explosion of what might be going on in Orpheus's sub-sub-subconscious in the few milliseconds before he turns around. So it's 17 minutes uh, of, of uh, under the microscope, putting a few milliseconds under the microscope. And uh, what I imagined going on for that piece I wrote my own text was pretty dark. I noticed that most Orpheus operas have this pattern, which is that basically the, the structure of them is Eurydice dies the first time, Orpheus sings the most beautiful music ever. Eurydice dies the second time. Orpheus gets to sing even more beautiful music. That's pretty much all that happens. And this began to disturb me, given that this is opera's foundational story. Uh, it's, you could be forgiven for wondering if the death, the suffering, is really just an excuse, the best possible excuse for music, and I started to think, well, that actually reveals something disturbing about opera writ large, that it is a, an art form that revels in the musicalization, the cathartic 
musicalization of, of suffering more than any other art form. And I felt that Orpheus was kind of the root of that, uh, that it is this primal uh, orgy of, of enjoyment, of, of, of loss. And so I imagined in the milliseconds before he turns around that what's going through his mind is, wouldn't this be the most fruitful thing ever for music? Wouldn't this be the greatest catastrophe? Wouldn't this be uh, uh, th th really the best thing ever for my, for my job as, as superhuman singer? Um, and I found myself really uh, inspired writing this piece, and I wanted to expand it into an opera, but I before long grew a little bit depressed at just how dark this conception of Orpheus was. I didn't really relish the prospect of living in that space, examining tortured male narcissism uh, for two and a half hours. <laughs> so I found myself a little bit stuck. Then, thanks to my little sister Christine, and also Andre Bishop, who runs Lincoln Center Theater, I read Sarah's play, and it reduced me to a weeping puddle, as it, as it does to, to practically everyone who encounters it. And I thought that it was really the, the, the best possible breath of fresh air, because Sarah looks at the story from the other end of the telescope and actually uses it merely as a launching off point for this extraordinary uh, examination of uh, her own life and several larger concerns. So, the play, the, the, the origin of this opera, um, the action is essentially as follows. We meet Eurydice and her boyfriend Orpheus as teenagers probably, maybe college students. They're very young. Sarah specifies that they're a little too young and a little too in love. Orpheus proposes to her, she accepts, and at the same time we meet her father, Eurydice's father, who uh, has died and who is in the underworld writing letters to Eurydice, not sure how he uh, how he could get them to her. At the wedding, Orpheus and Eurydice dance. Eurydice steps outside because the party's too noisy and she doesn't really like parties anyway. And she meets a strange, interesting man. He's identified in the play as an interesting man. And of course he's Hades, Lord of the Underworld, uh, come with a letter from her father. He says, I, I found this letter uh, your father really wanted to reach you on your wedding day. And she thinks, well, of course he would. So against her better judgment, she follows him to his uh, penthouse apartment. He's kind of in the, in the guise of a scuzzy uh, middle-aged businessman. <laughs> and instead of being bitten by a snake, as she is in the original myth, Eurydice falls down the thousands of stairs from this penthouse apartment into the underworld and becomes an amnesiac. She arrives and she goes through the river of forgetfulness, which in, in the play and the opera is an elevator that rains on you. And this, I think, is where our story really begins, where it really takes off by reducing 
our protagonist to this total blank slate. And throughout the middle of the opera, middle act of the opera, we inhabit this memory space that is the underworld where Eurydice encounters her father, but she encounters her father almost as a child again. She doesn't have language. She doesn't have memory. She doesn't have a sense of who she is. So we take a very deep dive into, uh, in a way, Sarah's own memories. Uh, Sarah's father passed away when she was 20, um, and she has told me that she wrote this play to have more conversations with her father. Uh, so there's this extraordinary tenderness and love uh, at the heart of the piece. Of course, Orpheus is at the same time trying to reach her, uh, and when he finally does, uh, Eurydice is not entirely sure she wants to go back with him. Uh, there is this completeness to her existence down in the underworld uh, and to her connection to her father that is very hard to leave. So in a way, the play and the opera become almost a love triangle. Um, and really, Sarah's dramatic masterstroke for me is that she does not end the story with the look back. She does not end it with uh, that loss, but takes it four steps further to what it means for the father, what it means for Orpheus up above, uh, and the tragedy just keeps unspooling. I won't go into too much detail about what happens in the last act because uh, you will find out soon enough. The music uh, of the opera has quite a wide range. There are extremes of lightness and tenderness. There are also extremes of noise. And so I thought tonight that I would give everyone a little bit of a guide to uh, the musical world of, of the piece and the way that uh, the characters are realized in music. The most obvious departure from Sarah's play and from most renditions of the Orpheus story is that our Orpheus is sung by two singers. We call them Orpheus and Orpheus's double. I wanted to find a way to musicalize Orpheus's split nature. Um, in, in the play, it's not just that Orpheus is human, he's, he's a pretty immature human. Uh, he's, he's a recognizable type in our world in that he's, he's very talented, but it's really annoying that he's talented because he's otherwise this oblivious, uh, not all that emotionally engaged person. You think, well, how, can, how do you reconcile these things? So I felt that that side of Orpheus had to be the most regular guy of voice types, that is, the baritone. And we needed something mysterious to exist around the baritone sound. Uh, we needed something that was hovering above him like a halo. Uh, and for me, that is the countertenor voice. That is a, a, a male voice um, type which essentially uses only the falsetto register. It's like an athlete who trains only the falsetto muscle uh, and competes only in the falsetto event, but does so 
uh, really spectacularly. Uh, and Orpheus's double, the countertenor, is not always present, and I don't think Eurydice sees him, but he is present when Orpheus goes into his kind of musical trance, and there's also a sense that there's something that Eurydice can't see, uh, that there's some side of, of, her, of her boyfriend that, that, is, that is not easily or readily accessible to her. Um, in the music for Orpheus, I was inspired by the great Hungarian composer Georgi Kurtag's transcriptions of Bach. Uh, Kurtag has these fabulous uh, Bach transcriptions for four hands piano, so two pianists on one bench. Um, and in a few of them, he imitates an organ stop that uh, turns one pitch into two, basically, separated by an octave and a fifth. Etc. It's this unearthly effect, and you're not quite sure where... Uh, the core of the sound is. And that, for me, it's more often an octave and a fourth, but that Orpheus and his double speak with this kind of forked tongue of, of sound. aspects of, of, of Orpheus's personality. Uh, Eurydice herself is hard to pin down because uh, she really is the piece. Uh, her, her music ranges from the music of a childlike being who's forgotten all sense of who she is to a completely mature woman, and I think this, the curious thing is that she really matures in the underworld. Um, Sarah has spoken about being inspired by Rilke's poem, uh, Orpheus, Eurydice, Hermes, uh, and especially the sense in that Rilke poem that Eurydice is almost pregnant with her own death, fulfilled in this mysterious way uh, by uh, this other kind of existence. I, I want to read just a bit of that poem for you all. She was deep within herself, like a woman heavy with child, and did not see the man in front or the path ascending steeply into life. Deep within herself. Being dead filled her beyond fulfillment, like a fruit suffused with its own mystery and sweetness. She was filled with her vast death, which was so new she could not understand that it had happened. She had come into a new virginity and was untouchable her sex had closed like a young flower at nightfall, and her hands had grown so unused to marriage that the gods' infinitely gentle touch of guidance hurt her 
like an undesired kiss. She was no longer that woman with blue eyes who once had echoed through the poet's songs, no longer the wide couches scent and island, and that man's property no longer. She was already loosened like long hair, poured out like fallen rain, shared like a limitless supply. She was already root. And when abruptly the god put out his hand to stop her, saying with sorrow in his voice, he has turned around, she could not understand and softly answered, who? You know, to be honest, that poem makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I think in spite of, as Sarah said, uh, Rilke's appreciation of Eurydice's subjectivity, there's the same, uh, I th there's, there's a certain amount of objectivization happening as well. And I think this is what makes the play, Sarah's play and the opera, especially rich, hopefully, and especially complicated. Sarah is a very harsh self-critic. She poured a lot of self-criticism into the role of Eurydice. Eurydice loves language, and it's language that, in a way, dooms her. Orpheus is this carefree embodiment of, of a musical way of being. Uh, Eurydice overthinks, analyzes, speaks before, before working it out fully. And so a number of people have asked, well, it's told from her point of view, but are you, are you empowering her? Are you giving her uh, the kind of voice that the title and the shift of perspective would imply? And what I would say to that is we've tried to endow our Eurydice with all of the richness of a tragic protagonist. Every tragedy, including Orpheus's, is a story of human disempowerment. Nobody ends up powerful at the end. That's the, that's the humility uh, that comes with tragedy. So along with all the good, we have transferred a lot of the bad <laughs> aspects of being a tragic protagonist to this new creation. Um, and we hope that that, is, uh, that that makes it more rich. Hades, the lord of the underworld, uh, who takes many guises over the course of the, of the opera, is a very different type of presence. Uh, he is a very high tenor, which is unusual for an operatic villain. They tend to be basses. They tend to have gravelly, you know, sadistically low voices. Um, but there's an absurdity to Sarah's Hades that made me think uh, that he had to uh, live in the stratosphere uh, and sound as if he's kind of on helium without being aware that he's on helium. Uh, he tries his best to sound like a human being, but it really doesn't go especially well. Um, and Hades' music is characterized by these rapid shifts from the completely absurd to the uh, actually frightening. 
uh, Hades is capable of putting on terrible mood music. singing along to that, but he's also capable of singing like a snake charmer and kind of hypnotizing, uh, in this case, Eurydice. so on. Uh, so Hades is a bit of a chameleon, um, and uh, we, we hope you laugh, and then we hope you stop laughing. <laughs> Down in the underworld, um, Hades has a number of minions, uh, including three stones. Uh, Sarah has left it really open what the stones are. She's just said there are three stones. Uh, it's partially inspired by the stones that Orpheus makes weep with his music, or maybe the stones that lie at the entrance to the underworld. But really, who the stones are is they're these Kafka-esque bureaucrats of the underworld who, uh, whose job it is to guard against any kind of uh, recognizable human emotion, any kind of, of suffering, any kind of, of compassion or love, uh, I've come to realize over the course of writing the piece that Stone's energy is all around us in the world. The stones represent something very real. They're this force of, they're this kind of normative force. They want to uh, bind everybody into this blank, uh, emotionless way of being. Uh, and they, they, they enforce that with their, with their charges down in, in the underworld. And the stones musically are painted in the same super bright colors that Hades is. Uh, they are loud, they're obnoxious, they, they intrude, they break through the textures of Orpheus, Eurydice, and the Father, which tend to be much more watery, much more kind of painted in pastels. I keep thinking, well, I should, I should play some of the music, but really, the stones you have to hear sung, so it's really not, it's, it's not worth uh, my fudging my way through it. Uh, the Father, uh, sung tonight by Rod Guilfrey, who I, I have learned recently has become the, 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 the singer who has sung both the most roles and for the longest at LA Opera since he was in... Uh, yeah, a round of applause for Rod. He'll hear you up in the dressing room uh, from singing The Herald in, in Otello in 1986 to... Um, most recently singing the role of Walt Whitman in My Last Opera Crossing a couple of years ago and now creating this role very beautifully. Um, the father's music is sonorous and rich and generous. Uh, he's really a, a, a figure of, of comfort and 
um, authority, uh, though his music is kind of infused by the mystery of the of the underworld. There's there's a long section when he's trying to teach Eurydice who she is again, and it's not really working. Uh, that involves these ongoing musical cycles that seem to never end. so on. The, the different worlds that the piece inhabits also have their own uh, musical atmospheres. There's a world above, there's a world below, uh, and uh, the world below is characterized by, uh, at first, by a tonelessness. We, we meet this, this world uh, through this relentless pulse that probably lasts uh, for a total of nine or ten minutes, though there's a lot of variation within, within that, that begins with uh, the percussion playing the least, uh, the least rich sounds you could imagine, sandpaper blocks scraping against each other and glockenspiel at the very top of the instrument and strings playing the highest possible harmonics and piano, piano up here in the, you know, the, the psycho register, um, and slowly the the colors fill in. But there's this there's this pulse which which I sort of came to think of as the the pulse of forgetfulness, the pulse of being of being stuck and not not uh, being able to think of of think in a linear way anymore. So that whatever else happens around it, that pulse kind of stays cruelly um, immobile. Uh, I'm realizing more and more that I just really want to show you the piece in all of its uh, orchestral and vocal colors. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoy the opera. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.